We're very fortunate, though, and actually uh, honored to have a moderator who was able to step right in. And let me introduce to you Krista Kalamus. Um, she's going to be our moderator today. Uh, she's the staff director in the Florida House of Representatives for the Health and, and Human Resources panel committee, actually. Um, she has a long history in healthcare law, and she's actually done very much to help pull together this panel today. We had to get a special dispensation to let the legislature have a key staffer escape while the legislature's in session. So we're very thankful to the legislature for doing that. Uh, Chris is someone that uh, I've known ever since the Christian Legal Society at the University of Florida, quite a few years ago now. But uh, one thing I always remember is we had a study group there, and I learned how popular a study group can be. After the first semester in Civ Pro, I think there were six A's in the Civ Pro class, and our study group had four and a book award. We were very popular the next semester after that <laughs> happened. But with that, um, I would like to turn this over to Krista and the panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. We have a very exciting panel with us. As Daniel mentioned, uh, the, the weather did have an effect on our panel this morning, and, and we've lost one panel member, Trish Riley from the National Association of State Health Policy, was supposed to be with us, but she's unable to fly out of Maine. I don't know why. <laughs> But we have three excellent experts with us today, and I'm just going to introduce them and tell you a little bit about them, um, and then talk about uh, the general questions that I uh, posed to them for them to articulate to you this morning. First, Dr. John Goodman is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute. He's the president of the Goodman Institute for Public Policy Research and author of A Better Choice, Healthcare Solutions for America, and Priceless, Curing the Healthcare Crisis. The Wall Street Journal and the National Journal, among other media, have called him the father of health savings accounts. Dr. Goodman received his PhD in economics from Columbia University. He's been the president and Kelly Wright Fellow in healthcare at the National Center for Policy Analysis, and he has taught and completed research at Columbia, Stanford, Dartmouth, Southern Methodist, and the University of Dallas. Dr. Goodman is frequently invited to testify before Congress on healthcare reform, and he's the author of more than 50, 50 studies on healthcare policy retirement reform and tax issues, plus 10 books, including Lives at Risk, Single-Payer National Health Insurance Around the World, Leaving Women Behind, Modern Families, Outdated Laws, and Patient Power, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis. Welcome, Dr. Goodman. Next to Dr. Goodman, we have Dr. Antonia Novello, who was appointed by President George H.W. Bush as the U.S. Surgeon General in 1990. She was the first woman and first Hispanic to hold that position. She received her MD degree from the University of Puerto Rico School of Medicine in San Juan and completed her internship and residency in nephrology at the University of Michigan. She completed fellowships in internal medicine and pediatrics at Michigan and Georgetown, respectively, and then entered private practice in Virginia. She later earned an MPH degree from Johns Hopkins and held a clinical appointment in pediatrics at Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Novello then joined the Public Health Service Commissioned Corps, holding various positions at the National Institutes of Health, including Deputy Director of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and Coordinator for AIDS Research. During, during her tenure as Surgeon General, Novello fo focused her attention on the health of women, children, and minorities, as well as on underage drinking, smoking, and AIDS. After her tenure as Surgeon General, Dr. Novello served as the UNICEF Special Representative for Health and Nutrition and later became Commissioner of Health for the State of New York. Thank you for being here, Dr. Novello. 
And finally, we have Mr. Ovik Roy, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He is also the opinion editor at Forbes and is advising Florida Senator Marco Rubio on policy. In 2015, Mr. Roy was senior advisor to former Texas Governor Rick Perry, and in 2012, he served as a healthcare policy advisor to Mitt Romney. He's the founder of Roy Healthcare Research, an investment research firm, and previously was an analyst and portfolio manager at Bain Capital and JP Morgan. Roy is the principal author of The Apothecary, a Forbes blog on healthcare policy and entitlement reform, as well as the author of Transcending Obamacare, a patient-centered plan for near-universal coverage and permanent fiscal solvency, and How Medicaid Fails the Poor. His research interests include the Affordable Care Act, universal coverage, entitlement reform, international health systems, veterans health care, and FDA policy. Mr. Roy serves on the advisory board of the National Institute for Healthcare Management, and he co-chaired the Fixing Veterans Health Care Policy Task Force. He was educated at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he studied molecular biology and Yale University School of Medicine. Thank you for being here, Mr. Roy. So for the last few years, this country has been engaged in a particularly focused debate about healthcare and how healthcare should work. But we rarely talk clearly about the nature of the problem. We get lost in the symptoms of the problem. Is it the uninsured? Is it pre-existing condition exclusion? Is it the cost of care, access to care, chronic disease? Is it the smokers? So I asked the panel um, a compound question. What is our healthcare problem? Is it a real problem? Once we define that problem, what principles should guide our solutions to that problem? Are there any solutions that work? And how do we know if they work? And ultimately, uh, for the purpose of the lawyers in the room, what laws need to change to get at those solutions? I think we're going to start with Dr. Goodman. I'm going to stand up so I can see all of you a little bit better. I'm still reeling, Krista, from that wonderful introduction you gave me. You know, almost makes you think you should run for office or something. I'm John Goodman. I approve that message. <laughs> Actually, I thought uh, our office was being a little bit generous in suggesting some of those introductory remarks, but I enjoyed every word of it. Um, when I talk, I usually have my cell phone with me because um, you never know, even in the middle of a, of a talk, you could have an emergency, right? Strike that. The real reason I have this phone is uh, to illustrate a point. There are more cell phones in the United States than there are people. Even the panhandler out on the street corner probably has a cell phone, but he probably doesn't have very good access to health care. If something happens to my cell phone in Dallas, Texas, there are a dozen places I can drop into without an appointment and get high quality, reasonable reasonably priced uh, repair. Uh, there are even places that will send someone to my home and repair my iPhone and my condo. And there's a national chain that's called iHospital and the people who work for it are called iDoctor. <laughs> but if something happens to me, uh, do you know the average wait in the United States for a patient to see a new doctor is three weeks? And in Boston, where we're told that they had universal coverage even before there was Obamacare, the average wait is two months. And amazingly, one out of every 10 people who go to an emergency room for care turn around and leave without ever seeing a doctor just because they get tired of waiting. In some places, it's one in five, which is what it is in Canada. Now, we, um, 
Why do you think that uh, the market is so kind to my iPhone and so mean to me? And I would suggest the reason is that this iPhone is produced and repaired in a real market with real prices where entrepreneurs know they can make millions of dollars if they meet our needs. Whereas over in healthcare, we have so suppressed the market year after year, decade after decade, that none of us ever sees a real price for anything. Uh, no patient, no doctor, no employer, and no employee. Uh, we like to think that our healthcare system is different from the system in Canada and in Britain, but in fact, we bought into the same idea they have bought into, and that is people shouldn't have to choose between healthcare and other uses of money. And so we have suppressed the price and we have suppressed the marketplace. And what we've forgotten is that when you do that, you raise the importance of non-price barriers to care. Basically, in the United States, we pay for care the same way the Canadians pay for care. We're not paying with money, we're paying with time. When the Canadians see a doctor, it's free. When we see a doctor, it's almost free. Every time we spend a dollar in a doctor's office, only 10 cents is coming out of our pocket. The other 90 cents is paid for by a third-party payer, employer, insurance company, or, or government. Um, have you ever noticed that when you go see one of the other professionals, a lawyer like yourself, or uh, architect, engineer, what, what, what do you call that exterior office area? You call it a reception area, right? But when you go to see a doctor, what do you call it? It's a waiting room. <laughs> it's well named. Now, the bottom line is that when you suppress the price, when you suppress the marketplace, you raise the importance of non-price barriers to care. What, what are they? How long does it take you on the telephone to get an appointment with a doctor? How many days do you have to wait before you see that doctor? How long does it take you to get from your home or your office to the doctor's office and back again? And once you're there, how long do you have to wait? Well, there's a lot of evidence that I could discuss with you that those non-price barriers to, pair, to care are a greater deterrent to care than the fee that the doctor charges. And that's not just true for the middle class, it's also true for poor families. Um, we have in the United States about 50 million people who are on, on, on food stamps. And people on food stamps can go into any supermarket that you or I go into. They can buy any product, just about any product that we buy. Uh, when they go to the checkout stand, in the old days they put their food stamps down, if they needed more, they added cash to it. Now they have a, a card that looks like a credit card. But if they need additional cash, they pay with that as well. They're paying the same prices that we pay. And you never hear it said in the United States that low-income folks do not have access to supermarkets. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is they have to get on a bus and go a mile or two. But you never hear a supermarket in the United States saying, we're not taking any more food stamp customers. That doesn't happen. But over in healthcare, we have about 65 million people on Medicaid. And for the most part, these are the same people. And uh, what is their biggest problem? Finding a doctor who will see them. I was in uh, Boston not long ago and struck up a conversation with a female taxicab driver who told me she was on MassHealth, which is Massachusetts Medicaid. And I said, well, how's it going? She said, well, I'm having trouble finding a doctor. She said, I went down a list of 20 names before I found a doctor who would even see me. And I said, well, you must have been going down the yellow pages. And she said, no, no, I was going down the list that MassHealth gave me. That's what they call universal coverage in Massachusetts. So what happens when Medicaid folks can't find a doctor? Well, they go to community health centers, they go to uh, safety net hospital emergency rooms. In Dallas, it would be Parkland Hospital, where unless you're bleeding all over the floor, uh, the wait to see a doctor at Parkland Hospital in Dallas would be four, five, six hours, depending on the day of the week and the time of the day. Uh, that's not very good access to care.
Now, while all that's going on, we have this proliferation of walk-in clinics. I think there are 1,300 of them now all over the country. In CVS Pharmacy, they're called a minute clinic. And the reason for the name a minute clinic is they're suggesting to you that they know your time is valuable as well as your money. And uh, these are very high quality, very reasonable priced. Um, in Dallas, Texas, if you had an earache or sore throat or a, 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 an ailment like that, it would cost about $75 at the CVS Minute Clinic. The problem is that Medicaid only pays half that amount. And unlike the folks over in the supermarket, uh, we make it illegal for the Medicaid enrollee to take money out of her purse or money out of his pocket and add to the rate that Medicaid pays. Uh, we made it a matter of criminal law, by the way. If the nurse accepts money on top of Medicaid, she could actually go to jail. Uh, now, uh, we could significantly increase access to health care for low-income people all over this country. We, we could make a huge, huge difference in a very short amount of time if we would just allow low-income folks to pay for health care the same way they pay for food. Uh, but we're not doing it, and not only are we not doing it, we're not even talking about it. And by the way, that would be a good talking point for Rubio. <laughs> He's an advisor to Rubio. Um, if we're going to solve our problems, we have to free the patient. And then we have to free the doctor. Doctors are the only professionals in our society who are not free to repackage and reprice the services they offer to the market. And all of you in your profession, the, uh, the accounts, the engineers, the architects, all the other professionals are free to change what they're doing. So if market demand changes, if technology changes, you can change the package that you offer to your customers and clients, and you can change the price. Doctors can't do that. Have you ever wondered why a doctor doesn't want to talk to you on the phone? You know, it's been 100 years since all the other professionals discovered this is a really handy device. You know, you don't have to go all the way to somebody's office to actually communicate with them. Um, but the doctors haven't discovered this. Have you ever wondered why uh, your doctor doesn't email you? I mean, everybody's emailing everybody these days, right? Even the corner liquor store emails me if they think I have a bottle of wine that, uh, that I might like, uh, <laughs> but not the doctor. But by the way, a minute clinic will email me, telling me it's fall season, flu time, and so forth, but, but not ordinary doctor. Well, the reason is because uh, Medicare has 7,500 tasks it pays doctors to perform. And next to each one, there is a, a price. And for some reason, they just left off the telephone when they made up that list. And they left off email, at least they left off for all practical reasons. And by the way, anytime you pay a professional, the worst way to pay any professional is try to list all the things he might do or she might do and then put a price next to each one because you'll never think of everything that, uh, that people will want. Uh, but doctors are trapped. Um, my favorite example of the trap is Jeffrey Brenner, who is a doctor in Camden, New Jersey, which is one of the poorest places in the whole country. No one in Camden has private insurance. They're either on Medicaid or Medicare or they're uninsured. So Jeffrey Brenner was this doctor there who, a um, uh, very bright guy, he's a researcher, he wanted to understand what was going on, so he went through the hospital records and he discovered that 1% of all the people who lived in Camden were responsible for 30% of all the hospital spending. So he went down the list of the 1% and he found this one guy who weighed more than 600 pounds. Um, he was a, uh, a drug addict, he was an alcoholic. He spent half a year in the hospital, and when he wasn't in the hospital, he was abusing himself. 
So Brenner takes this guy under his wing, he gets him off alcohol, gets him off drugs, gets him going to Alcoholics Anonymous, discovers the guy's a Christian, he starts going to church, uh, gets him on some welfare so there's, a, there's some financial stability in his life, and before long, this guy was no longer going into the hospital. So his medical expenses are just going down, down, down. We're saving tens of thousands of dollars uh, by, uh, by keeping this guy out of the hospital. Well, this was so successful that Brenner set up a clinic. He got some other people to help him. And today they're sa saving millions of dollars uh, for you as taxpayers, both into the Medicare and Medicaid program, uh, by treating patients in just that way. Now, I'll ask you, uh, for all of the millions of dollars of Medicare money that Brenner is saving, how much do you think Medicare gives Brenner? Yeah, zero, very good. And same for Medicaid. Uh, and why is that? It's because it's like the telephone, it's like the email. Most of what I described to you a few moments ago, I would just call social work. Well, that kind of social work just got left out of the list of things that Medicare pays for. Now, before there was a Barack Obama as president, uh, I went to talk to the, to the Bush folks in Health and Human Services, and I told them about Brenner, and they said, well, what should we do? I said, I think you should make, uh, make Brenner a millionaire. And uh, he said, what do you mean? I mean? Just write him a check for a million dollars. And uh, <laughs> they said, well, why would we want to do that? I mean, after all, he's already doing what we want him to do. I said, well, <laughs> you know, bureaucrats in Washington are slow thinkers. So I, I patiently explained, well, look, because if you allow him to get rich doing things like this, and you can tell every other doctor in America, if you can think of ways to, to lower costs and improve quality, we'll pay you in a different way. You, know, you tell us how you want to be paid, and we'll do a deal with you if you solve our problems. Well, that was such a radical idea uh, inside the Beltway uh, that they didn't do it. Um, they didn't know how radical things were going to get uh, once we got President Obama. Uh, by the way, Brenner liked the idea of making him a millionaire. He called me up and thanked me for that idea. <laughs> the Obama administration is trying to force him into the Obama bureaucracy. They're trying to force him to do something different from what he was doing. And that is such a wrong approach to take. If somebody's doing something you like and it's good for the system, don't tell them to go do something different. Um, that's not the way to reform the healthcare system. So we need to, to free the patient, free the doctor, and we need to free the entrepreneur. I'm often asked if um, the free market can work in healthcare, and Krista even brought up the subject. My answer is the only place in healthcare where anything works well is when we have a free market. Um, show me a place in healthcare where there's no Blue Cross, no employer, and no Medicare, and that's probably a healthcare market that's working really well. Uh, just scanning the room right now, I would guess that most of you don't know very much about the market for cosmetic surgery. I, I meant that as a compliment, by the way. <laughs> but give it another 10 years and you'll get more interested in this market. Uh, this is a market where there's no Blue Cross, there's no employer, there's no Medicare. It's just all you know, people paying with their own money. And what do you find? You find a package price that covers all the services, a, a doctor, anesthetist, nurse, and so forth. You have price competition. And over the last 10, 15 years, the real price of cosmetic surgery keeps going down, 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 as the real price of every other kind of surgery keeps going up, up, up. And, um, and it is a market that works extremely well. And over all that time, while the real price is coming down, the demand has just surged. I mean, we're doing six times more procedures than we did 10 years ago. And you have new technology as well. The same kind of technological improvements that we're told uh, cause prices to rise everywhere else in the healthcare system. 
Uh, LASIK surgery, same thing. You get package prices. You have price competition. You have quality competition. Uh, real price of LASIK surgery keeps coming down. The walk-in clinics we've already talked about. Uh, Rx.com, uh, which was the first uh, online mail-order pharmacy, they never would have existed if Blue Cross were their only customer. They came into existence to appeal to people who were paying out of their own pocket for expensive drugs, and they started competing with local pharmacies. And the quality is higher, and the, the, the price is lower. So markets do work. They can work in healthcare, and they work very well, uh, provided that, uh, that we allow it to happen. There's an international market for medical tourism. We have a market for domestic tourism. We have Canadians who come down here and get what you all can't get for their hip and knee replacements. They get a package price, and guess what? They're paying about half what you pay. Um, that means hospitals can deal with patients as real customers. Uh, they're just not doing it. Now, I uh, haven't said a word about Obamacare, really, and so let me just conclude by, uh, by just a few words on Obamacare. The Yakuza in Japan, uh, when a member of... Uh, <laughs> When a member of their group commits a serious mistake, you know what they do? They sever a finger, and then they give that finger to their leader by way of atonement. And I've often thought that if uh, the folks on Capitol Hill, members of the Obama administration, had half as much honor as the members of the Japanese mafia, we'd see a lot less finger pointing in Washington. <laughs> You probably asked why do I come to the front, and it's because I'm shorter than any other members of the podium. The other thing is because I have never felt so scared to talk to a group. You guys make me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> because anything I say might be used against me in a court of law. <laughs> and worse, anything I can say, I'm going to have all the doctors telling me that I'm giving you too much ammunition. But on the same token, I want to be able to be the, the doctor in the panel. And I think that we cannot start discussing much of healthcare unless we know really the data, because people who speak without data are people who only have opinions. And for that reason, I'm going to be very much filling you of data, because then you are going to understand the problem. And then, of course, Vic is going to solve the problem by telling us what to do. And if I don't like what your faces look when I'm talking and don't get confused, I'll be talking in Spanish so that I'll confuse you even more. <laughs> because after all, I am a VIP. A very important Puerto Rican. <laughs> it was like in 1970, Nixon was already talking about everyone is going to be able to get health care at a reasonable cost, regardless of where he or she lives and regardless of the income. Six presidents and a whole bunch of other people in the last 100 years have tried to make sure that we have some kind of universal coverage so that they can have something in their presidential promises and something in their legacy and to no avail. So when you look into this, the healthcare system is really a bureaucracy that has become an industry in where basically everything is confusing and there's no a major leader. So when that is the case, I think to think, okay, what seems to be the biggest problems today in the healthcare field? because every American needs to have access to high quality care when they need it, where they need it, and at the price that they can afford. But today, even in the presence of having 10 million people so-called insured under the Obamacare, and giving insurance coverage in the recent past, 
there still remains a lot of components and improvements that we need to do because still we're not doing as good as we should. And in that case, let's look into cost, access, and quality. Look into cost in the United States. We are 17% of the GDP. And when I look into that, we are higher than any other country of the high income levels. We also have a cost per patient of $9,086. We have the patient spending $1,074 for copays, deductibles, medications, and visits to the doctor. And one third of the hospital expenditures go for administration. $18,000 is the average you pay when you go to a hospital for four days. And therefore, I have to tell you that the costs are large, 2.2 to $3 trillion. So when I look into that, I say, what are some of the things of the cost that are driving this in particular? And I can tell you, the greater cost is the use of medical technology. United States have higher per capita rates secondary to Japan, MRIs, CAT scans, and PETs. And when you look into this, United States has 11,000 MRIs. And when you look into this, you have at least a price of $2,600 to have an MRI, and last year there were a million performed in the United States. Some of them going into physicians' practices, and when you're a neurologist and an orthopedic, everybody gets a spine and everybody gets a knee. So decide what is it that you want to do. So at this point, it costs about from 150,000 to 1.2 million to have an MRI machine because since it has radiation, it has to be in special places, and still the United States has 11,000 MRIs in this country. So at the cost of $2,611 per one, and one million of them done last year, you can imagine the cost. The second thing that I think is there is really the higher hospital and physician's prices. In this country, you can go to a state in the same hospitals with the same diagnosis where none of the prices are equal. And more than anything, a bypass in the United States is $75,000. As I look into the audience, I'm sure that some of you know what I'm talking about. It reminds me of that program, Elizabeth, I'm having a big one. Bypass $75,000 in the United States and you men get it more than we women because we withstand pain better than you. <laughs> in Australia, it's only $42,000. The another issue that I think is costing a lot is the pricing of the hospitals. This consolidation of hospitals, buying small practices, is absolutely making them in control of how much insurance are they going to get from you and from the underinsured. And another driver of healthcare causes the 98,000 cases of errors that happens in the hospitals that some of them can be preventable, some of them are very harmful, and some of them can cause you death, and they cost us 29 billion per year. But one of the other things that is costing us money is the absence of malpractice insurance. That curtails being taken care of if we eliminate half of the technology that I just disposed about, we can really lower by five to 10% the cost of healthcare. So when you look into this, I believe that malpractice insurance have to be looked upon as something that is increasing the cost. But in spite of all this money, we do not invest in social problems in this United States of America. Very little in housing assistance, employment assistance, disability payments, even food security. So as a consequence, we are a country that has very poor, very poor population health. In spite of what we spend, we are the lowest in life expectancy in the countries that are rich, 78 years. We have the highest infant mortality, six deaths per 1,000 births. We have a high prevalence of chronic diseases. The average person over the age of 65 have between two to five chronic illnesses, hypertension, diabetes, osteoporosis, and the like. More than the third of the adults in the United States are obese, secondary only, to Indonesia. 
We have a large number of uninsured, 45 million to talk, and a large difference in lifestyles, and a large difference in violence and in accidents. Today, 72% of the chronically ill in this United States over the age of 65 has a difficulty obtaining to see a physician. 72% cannot see a primary care doctor, 79% cannot see a specialist, and 74% cannot get to see someone who will change their medications. So when we look into access, even though the Obamacare reporter in the Journal of the American Medical Association suggested that everything is a success, because 10 million people have been coming, 12 million in Medicaid and in CHIP, and the increment in African Americans 11%, and the increment in Hispanics by 11%. So they say that the Obamacare has been a success. But the system has still failed to accommodate the diverse cultural needs and the preference of all racial and ethnic groups in this United States because they do not recognize that culture is the way that you have to go into medicine today. When I was the commissioner of health of the state of New York, September 11, and everybody was having a real crisis, I asked them, please tell me, every psychologist, psychiatrist, go out there and try to see what is happening in this country. And what happened? When I look at the one month cost, I saw that heart was going up and psychiatry was going down. Why? Because in the culture where people say, I have a pain in my heart, the people did an EKG rather than realizing that in communities of color, pain in my heart means I am depressed. When Chevrolet had the Nova car, they failed. Because if they would have asked the Latins, Nova means it's going nowhere. So of course the sales went down. <laughs> you must know the culture in order to accommodate the people. So remember, we are 323 million people in the United States. 77% are white, 17% are Hispanics, and 13% are African Americans. The median age for the African Americans is 34 years old, and for the Latinos is 29. We have a young population and an older population. So when you look into this, the birth rate really has done this. 13 children per 1,000, and the death rate has been eight per 1,000. The life expectancy, as I said, is 79 years, 77 for the male, and 81 for the female. I am sorry, guys, you smoked before we did. Now. The fertility is 1.8 children per woman, and today 50% of the children below the age of five belong to a minority community. So when you look into women, we are 158 million and men are 151. The only reason I mention that is because women utilize services of health much more than men, and we have to prepare for that. So by the 2060, 98 million people will be over the age of 65 in this United States, and by 2044, the US Census has said that the white majority will no longer exist. So in the presence of these needs, we have to take care of a diverse population. And the advantage is that we need access. But what's the problem? We have 31,000 shortage of physicians in this United States. We only have 2.1, 2.6 physicians per 1,000 people. And we have fewer hospital visits and we have fewer hospitalizations. Currently, the healthcare system is ill-equipped to take care of the optimal experience of people. 98 million over the age of 65 by 2060. We only have 7,500 geriatricians in this country when we will need at least 12,000 of them. So the US care system will have to train many more geriatrics. When you look into this, I say we also have great problems with quality. In the quest of trying to get patients into the hospitals today, we have 12 million of the United States residents that in the outpatient system suffer at least 5% of infections that could have been prevented. In the readmissions, every patient with 
chronic heart disease, pulmonary problems, and even um, congestive heart failure come back to the hospital within 30 days of having been discharged? Is it poor quality or is it lack of communication of the people when they leave the hospital? We have hospitals who are supposed to be taking care of the poor, and the disproportionate shared cost has been dropped, will be dropped by 50 billion in the, up to 2019. We have a little bit of surgical complications that I'm sure that you like very much, retained foreign bodies, wrong-sided surgery, and mistaken identity. Then we also have this, in the best electronic medical records, we have this lack of communication that has happened because in some states people are much more worried about the privacy keeping rather than the communication regarding medicine. And when I look into that, most of the doctors are complaining because today, when I am only allowed to see patients by seven minutes, my electrical medical record machine is behind me. I face my patient occasionally as I type his or her name. And so the interaction of knowing how you feel is taken away by the technical assistance that is gonna make us better communicate. So the American Medical Association is trying to change that as much as they can. And so when you look into that, we have medication errors because you, like us, really scribble because we are fast. So we are gonna need the electronic medical records to be able to take away the medication problems that are always there and the 98,000 chronic diagnoses that happen and errors that people die. But more than anything, we have so many unnecessary tests and so many unnecessary therapies. With no visible impact on the patient disease, 57% of the MRIs come back normal. But at 2,600, you're gonna get one from me. So we need a culture of safety. So when I look into this, I have the feeling that we have to move into the culture of quality. And we will discuss much more of this after Roy talks and after we have the discussion. But we're going to need more accountability in the healthcare delivery. And we're going to need absolutely hospitals to access the performance of the people in a better way. Sometimes it is considered to be punitive and sometimes it is considered to be non-punitive, depends on the perception of the physician. When you look into access, we're going to need to have more physicians in training. We're going to have many geriatrics. And when you look into that, the most important thing is the residency slots for training physicians are very much the bottleneck that at the end we cannot get there. And today, we tend to say we need more nurse practitioners rather than looking at the 25% of foreign medical doctors out there that are doctors that given the time to find the right credentials will be able to be trained in medicine within 18 months and incorporated rather than doing four years for brand new kids who probably still do not know how to do EKGs. I went to a class of medicine and I say, what is an EKG? And they say, aye, doctora, electrocardiogram. I say, what is an EEG? An electroencephalogram. I say, and what is an EGG? No, no, it was an egg. So we need to get those kids much more tuned. And when it comes for doctors, absolutely, we're gonna need more training and we're gonna need much more cultural sensitivity. And do not assume that the training that you have done will be equal to equalize a nurse practitioner to a primary care physician. They are really having a terrific time trying to incorporate this into their training. And we need to pass malpractice liability across the board. But more than anything, like lawyers, you need to pay doctors for the time that when they go home, they still call patients, read x-rays, and call consultants. And more than anything, we have to solve the issue of the medical doctors absorbing when the insurance doesn't pay. So we have to be able to do the best we can for medicine for the future, and during the discussion, I will be able to answer many more of your questions. Thank you so much for your time.
Hey everybody, it's, uh, it's great to be here with all of you at the Federal Society. I feel a certain kinship with Federal Society because I, um, in my med school days, uh, served a term as chairman of the Conservative Party of the Yale Political Union. Uh, and uh, as some of you may know, it was Yale Political Union alums in the 70s who helped found the Federal Society, Steve Calabresi in particular. Um, I thought it would be useful to, uh, to, to kind of marry what you all do and what we all try to do in the policy community. That is to say, insofar as the Federal Society exists to advance constitutional liberty, and we in the policy world are trying to advance economic liberty, uh, I figured I'd try to draw these two concepts together and help you understand where liberty in particular uh, has been abridged uh, by healthcare policy in America and what we can do to change that. So there's a really simple way to think about this, particularly in the context of Obamacare, which obviously has been the controversy of the last six years. That is to say, as, as you heard particularly from John, we didn't have a free market healthcare system before Obamacare. So what was the level of government intervention in the healthcare system prior to Obamacare? Obviously, we have to think through what Obamacare did to expand government intervention in the healthcare system. And only then, when we understand those two factors, can we really think through what is the most effective way to reduce healthcare government intervention in toto, not just the intervention that's been introduced most recently. This is uh, the Congressional Budget Office's projection of federal spending over the next 75 years. And I've simplified their projections by dividing it into two categories, healthcare and everything else. So the red is healthcare, and the blue is everything else. And by everything else, I mean the defense budget, social security, bridges to nowhere, highway money, everything you think the federal government should or shouldn't be doing. Uh, so what you'll notice from this chart, and the y-axis here is uh, GDP. So really, actually, federal spending as a share of the economy is stable except for healthcare. It's healthcare, literally almost every dollar in the growth of government as measured by federal spending is healthcare, with the exception of interest on the federal debt. So here's an interesting statistic for you. In 2022, so six years from today, we will be spending more on interest on the federal debt than we spend on our entire military budget. So we are not very far from the fiscal catastrophe that people like uh, us have been complaining about for a very long time. It is very soon upon us. We're never going to get to 2050 on this chart because China will pull the credit card long before then and we have a very serious financial and economic crisis. And by the way, when we have to engage in the severe austerity we'll take to change the slope of this curve so that it's more stable, who do you think is going to be hurt? The people who depend the most on that federal spending, right? The elderly, the poor, the sick, the vulnerable. So it is especially important for them that we do something about this incredibly serious problem. I call this chart the blah, blah, blah chart. <laughs> and it's because this is a chart you'll hear any, you know, in any lecture on healthcare policy. It's the chart that shows that the United States is spending 17 or 18% of its GDP on healthcare, which is far more than every other country in the world, blah, 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 blah. But here's a chart I'm going to show you that's actually even more alarming than this one. 
Because at the end of the day, think about it. If we voluntarily decide to spend 18% of our GDP on healthcare, that's not really such a big deal. I mean, you could argue that we spend way too much of our GDP on video games or cosmetics, but we say, what's the big deal? People are spending their own money voluntarily on these things. That's okay, right? We're going to spend more money on those things because we're a wealthier country that can afford to. This chart shows you per capita spending by the government on healthcare in the advanced economies. And again, I apologize that these numbers are hard to read. But in 2012, so prior to Obamacare going online, the United States government spending per capita was the third highest in the world, higher than all those single, single payer countries like Canada and the UK that we always think of as the countries that are fiscally irresponsible when it comes to health care. Actually, they spent a lot less per capita. And they've achieved universal coverage. And it's, by the way, not just the single-payer countries. There's a lot of different ways to achieve universal coverage. Having a single government insurer that controls everything is one way to do it. It's not the only way. But the fact is, you'll hear a lot of people on the left, smart people, say, you know what? Actually, single-payer health care would be more fiscally responsible than the system we have today. And strictly speaking, they're right. Because what do single-payer systems do? They impose price controls. They impose rationing of access to care. So they cover everyone. Everyone has health insurance. Uh, but they also uh, control prices. So that is one way to spend actually less money than we spend. And again, whatever you and I may think are the flaws of that kind of system, we would be uh, uh, in less of, a, of the fiscal problems that we're having if, if we had a single-payer health care system. So just keep that point in the back of your head, and I'm going to come back to that later. But the point here of this slide is to say, look, before Obamacare went into effect, we did not have a, a free market healthcare system in America. So you heard the debate in 2008, it was typically, well, on the right we'd say we have the best healthcare system in the world, we don't want to be like those Europeans, let's keep it the way it was. And you'd hear the left say, no, we have this terrible capitalistic healthcare system, we've got to change it to be more like Europe. Well, both sides were wrong, because actually prior to Obamacare, we already had a system in which the government was spending about 50% of what we spent on health care in this country. So what did Obamacare do? Yes, Obamacare spends more money for more federal dollars, more taxpayer dollars on health care. When the law is fully online in about uh, you know, the early 2020s, we're going to be spending about $250 billion a year on Obamacare-sponsored health insurance coverage, which, which is real money even in Washington. Uh, but uh, if you actually change the y-axis on this chart, and layer in what the federal government was already spending on health care prior to Obamacare. It's this red stuff. That's Medicare, Medicaid, VA, et cetera. So you hear a lot of Republican politicians say, Obamacare is the government takeover of the health care system. Well, if Obamacare is the government takeover of the health care system, what's all that? The government takeover of the health care system did not take place in 2010. It took place in 1965, when after Goldwater went down in flames, uh, Lyndon Johnson took advantage of record majorities uh, in Congress to pass the Great Society, Medicare and Medicaid. That one election made the difference between all, all the fiscal problems we're having in this country today stem from that one election, which tells you how important presidential elections can be and how important it is. Uh, uh, particularly in, uh, to not blow up completely what we, uh, what we have in Congress right now. So you can repeal and replace Obamacare all you want, 
But unless you tackle this problem right here, you haven't accomplished anything. The left has won. I don't think any of us thought we weren't going broke in 2010 before Obamacare was passed. And if we don't tackle this problem, then we failed. Then the left has won. So let's summarize now what the healthcare system looked like before Obamacare in terms of infringements upon liberty. Well, let's talk about the tax code. First, there was the employer tax exclusion, which some of you may know uh, came out of World War II era price controls and exempts all employer spending on your uh, workers' health care from taxation. That doesn't just mean federal income taxes, by the way. That means state and local income taxes. That also means Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes. So the sum total of the value of that exclusion is about $500 billion, half a trillion dollars which makes it the second largest entitlement in the country, second only to Medicare. So that's a pretty significant distortion in the sense that if you had that money uh, treated equally to all the other money that you earn, maybe you'd spend it on something other than health insurance or health care. Maybe you'd spend it on a home. Maybe you'd spend it on a car. Maybe you'd spend it on your heating bills. You could spend it on a lot of things. But the government has effectively prioritized health insurance spending over all those other things. So is it any surprise that hospitals charge whatever they want? that doctors are among the richest professionals in America because they can charge high prices because none of us pay for anything directly. We all just go to the doctor and assume it's all paid for by somebody else. So what about spending? What about federal spending? Well, as I mentioned, government spending, federal, state, and local, is, was the third highest in the world pre-ACA. Regulation. So you heard from John about how through that federal spending, the regulations have emerged. One of the most famous is uh, the, uh, what's called EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which was the law signed by Ronald Reagan that requires hospitals to take anyone into their emergency rooms regardless of their ability to pay or their immigration status, right? Which has been the justification for Romney Care and Obamacare, right? Well, since we're already paying for all these people to go to the emergency room, well, we might as well give them universal coverage that pays for everything, even things that the emergency room doesn't actually do. Uh, but why was, how was that law effectuated? It was effectuated by saying to hospitals, well, if you want to continue receiving Medicare payments, you have to uh, accept these illegal immigrants and, and treat them in the emergency room. So the regulatory state that we have has been driven by that carrot of Medicare funding, in particular, also to a secondary degree, Medicaid. So that was a huge intrusion that, again, started really in 1965. And then, of course, there's a crowd out of private enterprise. When you expand government health care, you reduce the incentive and the desire of people to sign up for private health insurance. There have been economic studies that have shown for every three people you sign up for Medicaid, you crowd out private insurance by one to two people, meaning that one to two of those people already had access to private insurance, but they don't sign up for it anymore because they would have had to pay some sort of premium or some sort of copay. So why not just go for the Medicaid, which is theoretically free? And so all of a sudden, the private sector shrinks away from doing this kind of work or serving those kinds of consumers. And then all of a sudden we say, if we, if we want to reform it, everyone says, well, you can't do that. There are 90 million people on this system. You can't change it, right? And so you'll hear people say, well, Obamacare is the Trojan horse for single-payer health care in America. Maybe you yourself have said that. Well, guess what? 90 million Americans are already on single-payer health care in America. Why do you think Bernie Sanders calls his health care plan Medicare for all? Because it's single-payer health care. So here's the point I was talking about earlier. 
So we often think about, well, that government intervention in healthcare, it's really for all those slackers who sit around and don't work, and that's really bad because it means that people have more incentive not to work. Well, I guess that's true. There are, there, we are spending several hundred billion dollars a year uh, subsidizing uh, people who are in that uh, uh, situation. But the employer tax exclusion, the, the, what we do to subsidize employer-sponsored health insurance for most of the people in this room, is as big of an entitlement, as I was mentioning earlier, as Medicare and Medicaid. Or it's actually bigger than Medicaid, you know, slightly smaller than Medicare. But the point is, you know, one of the things that we often forget, we all think that welfare is something that only affects other people or benefits other people, that we pay the taxes so that other people get welfare. Actually, Republican voters are the biggest recipients of health care subsidies, right? Because who are we? We're employed people and old people. The federal government spends trillions of dollars a year subsidizing health care for old people and employed people. So you want to know why we haven't talked enough about health care reform in our party? You want to know why our plans tend not to be that impressive or sufficient or why we don't really advocate real reform? It's because we're the biggest beneficiaries of federal intervention in the health care system. And our politicians have not had the courage to challenge that status quo. So what did Obamacare do to improve upon government intervention in the healthcare system, right? Well, I will say it did do one thing, which is it, it, it instituted this Cadillac tax, which has unfortunately been delayed by the Republican Congress by two years. But that Cadillac tax at least starts the process of rolling back this unlimited exemption for employer-based health insurance from the tax code, which is an important thing uh, to reform uh, that Republicans should embrace. Though the Cadillac tax does it in a particularly clunky way that has carve-outs for labor unions and the like, the general principle is the right one. But in every other way, Obamacare takes us in the wrong direction. Of course, it increases federal spending by $1.3 trillion over the next 10 years. It's added more than 20,000 pages to the Federal Register because now you have a federal, a layer of federal regulation around how uh, people can shop for uh, insurance on their own. So the federal intervention used to be employer-based insurance and Medicare and Medicaid. But if you had to buy health insurance on your own as an individual, which few people did, but some people did, that was regulated at the state level. Now there's a federal layer of regulations. One of the most important things about Obamacare that we don't talk about. We talk about the spending and the taxation and the individual mandate, some of the things around religious liberty. We don't talk about the fact, actually the religious liberty part actually relates to this, that the federal government is now regulating how individuals can buy insurance on the individual market. And of course, there's now more crowd out of private enterprise, private insurance, uh, because the government has gotten more involved in driving expansion, particularly in Medicaid. So when you're looking at this uh, Republican field, and I know we haven't really talked a lot about uh, uh, how to improve the healthcare system in the Republican debates, it really hasn't has barely been asked, uh, in, in, in these debates, but eventually we're going to have this discussion about what Republicans ought to do to reform the health care system. And as I've emphasized to you, it's not enough to just talk about Obamacare. You've got to talk about the whole system because so much of the spending comes from Medicare and Medicaid, not Obamacare. So here are the three things I would ask, and it's a very simple three bullets, right? The first is, how much does your plan actually roll back these four categories of government intervention that we've identified today. Spending through the tax code, spending through outlays, regulation, 
and private sector crowd out. Second thing, which is very important, is how viable is your plan in the 2016 presidential election when Hillary is the nominee on the other side, if she is? Are you going to be able to defend your plan against accusations that you're going to throw tens of millions of people off, your health off their health insurance? Are you going to be able to argue, as we do when we talk about tax reform, that your policy is actually going to improve quality and access and affordability of the health care system for uh, Americans? And then the third thing is even if you manage to become president, that's great, but it doesn't matter unless you actually pass laws that actually change the way the health care system works. So does your plan actually have a shot in hell of getting 60 votes in the Senate. That's something we tend to forget about in this Obamacare debate, right? The Democrats, for a brief window of time, had 60 votes. And what Obamacare is, much of the dissatisfaction of the left, it didn't have a public option famously, right? Why? Because the 60th votes, uh, Ben Nelson and, and Joe Lieberman refused to support a public option. So that's where they got, that's, they got Obamacare for that. But the point is, unless we have 60 Republican senators, we're not going to have our dream piece of legislation. So we're going to have to find four or five people on the Democratic side, if not nine or 10, who will agree with us if we have any shot in hell of passing anything to replace Obamacare reform entitlements. So now going back to this slide, I said that the, the U.S. is spending pre-Obamacare more than almost any other country in the world on health care. There are two countries here at the bottom of the chart that actually spend a lot less than us and have actually more market-oriented health care systems than we do, Switzerland and Singapore. So what Switzerland does, now bear with me, so what Switzerland does today is they basically have the Obamacare exchanges for everyone. There's an individual mandate, but everyone shops for their own health insurance. The plans are heavily regulated. The subsidies are on a sliding scale, so the poorest get a subsidy, uh, the richest do not get any subsidy. So while this is not exactly a model for us, and since we wouldn't want as government-oriented uh, system as Switzerland, it is much less government-oriented than ours. Why? Because Switzerland only subsidizes health care or health coverage for 20% of the population, the bottom 20%, on a sliding scale. 80% of Swiss have to buy their own health coverage without any help from the government. Whereas we subsidize health coverage, as I showed you in that other chart, for pretty much everybody, mainly us, right? So while their system is imperfect and we wouldn't do it exactly like them, we can learn from their scheme of subsidies to say, hey, you know, if we actually just subsidize the bottom fifth of the population, the people who really need a safety net, we would save trillions of dollars compared to what we spend in America. What Singapore does is very interesting. They have a universal system of health savings accounts where people then shop for their own health care directly the way we buy food stamps, as John was talking about. That system is incredibly successful at achieving uh, economies of scale and cost. Here's another point I would mention, and I was alluding to this earlier, that we in America have, on the right, have equated universal coverage with single-payer healthcare. We've equated universal coverage with bad stuff, with infringements upon liberty. You know, you, you, you know and, that, and that's, that's not exactly true. I mean, think about it this way. How many of us would argue that in order to achieve full employment, we need to have more government invention. I think most of us would argue that actually free markets lead to more employment than government intervention. I think most of us would argue that if you want every American to have a cell phone, you don't do that by having single-payer cell phones. You do that by letting tech companies innovate and deliver those products at a lower price. I think we would all say that if you wanted everyone to have access to any product in our society, the best way to do that is through free markets. So why have we been afraid to say that about healthcare? 
Healthcare is exactly like every other sector of the economy. The more we let it be a free market system, the more it'll be accessible, especially to people at the low end of the spectrum. So here's a chart that, uh, that you know, Heritage puts out every January, as you may know, the, their index of economic freedom, where they rank every country in the world on economic freedom. And we often say in this country, well, we had universal coverage. Well, then we would just be, you know, that would be the end of economic freedom in America. But here's the funny thing. We rank 12th on this, uh, on this list as of last year. 10 of the 11 countries ahead of us on that chart on that table in terms of economic freedom, have universal coverage. Now, that's not to say we want the Canadian model, as I said. But the point is, you can actually achieve universal coverage and have more economic freedom than we have today. The way you do it is have a true safety net for the people who truly need the help and get the government out of the way for everyone else, the people like us who can easily afford to buy health care in a free economy. Now, let me touch, ben, base, uh, uh, touch again on this point about the 60 senators. In the 2016 election, the map is incredibly unfavorable to Republicans. So most of the, Repu the people who are running for your election are the open seats in 2016 uh, that are in competitive states are in states like Illinois or Florida, where there's an open seat because uh, Marco isn't running again, or uh, Pennsylvania or Ohio. Right? So the fact is we're not going to have 60 seats in the next Senate. We'll be lucky to have 51. I hope we do. But it's going to be a big fight. So what are we going to do? If we want to reform the health care system, both the older entitlements like Medicare and Medicaid and Obamacare, we've got to do so by appealing. We have to do what Obamacare didn't do. And that is to say our reforms have to be bipartisan, which means they're not going to be the libertarian utopia uh, reforms that we might all otherwise root for. What is the winning formula? I would argue it's just what I described earlier. It's to say, you know what? Let's embrace the policy goal of universal coverage, of covering more people, but insist on doing, through, doing so through the free market. Devote actually possibly more resources to making sure that the people who truly need the help, who truly can't afford health care in this country, have the assistance they need, whether it's at the federal or state level. But make sure that the rest of us who can afford to buy our own health care do so and don't have government interference in the way we buy healthcare. You do that, you spend a lot less money, you need a lot less regulation, but you actually achieve the policy goal that the left claims to support, which is expanding access to coverage and care. So with that uh, as a, a thought uh, to put in your bonnet, uh, if you want to read more about my own uh, approaches to healthcare reform, you can download Transcending Obamacare from the Manhattan Institute website and fixing veterans' health care from the, the Concerned Vets for America website. Thank you very much. So could we talk nuts and bolts for a minute? We've talked about free market proposals, um, trying to get to that goal. We've got a third-party payer system in this country that creates um, bizarre distortions of supply and demand. What specifically can be done besides repealing parts of Obamacare to bring us more towards a market-oriented system? Well, I'd expand on your, on your uh, question and to say this. It's not just that we have a third-party system for health care. So as many of you know and understand, the more a third party pays for your health care, the less you're connected to the value and the cost and quality of the decisions you make because it's, you just assume that it's paid for. It's like going to an open bar at a Federalist Society party, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to go for this. If you're me, you're going to go for the single malt scotch if there's one available, right? 
Whereas maybe if it's a cash bar, you're, okay, you settle for the Bud Light or whatever it is. Um, healthcare works exactly the same way. Now the problem for us in America is it's not just that we have third-party payment for healthcare through insurance. We also have third-party payment for third-party payment of healthcare because the vast majority of us don't choose the health insurance plan that we enroll in. Someone else has chosen it on our behalf, usually our employers or the government. Right? So not only do we not have any connection to the healthcare services we directly consume, like doctor's appointments and things like that, but we have no connection to the value and price of the health insurance products that we buy because someone else has bought them for us. So, so, so in general, the way to think about reforming that whole cascade of problems, it's not just, it's ninth party healthcare effectively. What we have to do is we have to move more to a system where people buy their own health insurance, not the employer or the government. And the more we, we have to move to a system where fewer things are covered by insurance and more things are covered by your own personal spending. And again, maybe you help lower income people afford that through the health equivalent of food stamps, a health savings account. Uh, but the more you move in a direction of direct payment of health care and the more you move in a direction of direct payment for health insurance, the more you move in a market oriented direction. Dr. Goodman? Well, we need to liberate the health savings account, which is credited to me by, by Krista. Um, there were others who helped with that effort, by the way. But it's far too restrictive. Uh, we need a very flexible health, care, health savings account that will wrap around any third-party insurance plan. We need to make it as easy as possible for employers to put money in an account, say for the diabetics and other chronically ill folks, let them manage their own care, let them manage their own money, let them profit from being responsible consumers of health care. And we need to make it very clear that employers can give their employees or make available to employees a certain amount of money for operations like hip and knee replacements. Uh, this will give you one quick example. Uh, WellPoint out in uh, California for uh, CalPERS, which is all the employees of, of California, thousands and thousands of people. Uh, they looked at the California hospitals and about 41 hospitals for hip and knee replacements consistently came in under $30,000. All the others were all over the map. So they said to all the employees, you go to one of those hospitals, you have the normal deal, but there are about 41 of them. But uh, if you go to any other hospital, you can, but all we're going to pay is $30,000. And within two years, all the other hospitals, the average cost was down below 30000 So we, we need to be able, need, the law needs to be clear that we can liberate uh, patients in that way, and that will have huge, uh, that will cause huge changes. I think that while we wait for that tremendous uh, input to happen, I think that the law suggests that we have to have the same thing that when we go to beauty parlors or we go anywhere, a complete set of costs for services rendered by hospitals, by procedure and by laboratory. The patient has the right to know exactly what is ex expected of him or her to pay for services and technology. To this moment, it is supposed to be across the board, but it does not happen across the board, because some hospitals suggest that cost depends on the moment, whether it's an emergency or whether it's something that is a follow-up. But the right to know what to you pay in healthcare for every procedure and for every single laboratory is supposed to be part of the law. While we get to this particular two points, I think that we should at least know that so we can shop with our feet wherever we want to go regarding paying the price that is expected of us to pay for the services that we pay uh, with our insurances. So I think I'll ask one more question, and, and if there are questions from the audience, if y'all would go ahead and start lining up, that would be great. 
Um, Florida-specific question for the panel. The state of Florida has had some interesting challenges, difficulties with its relationship with the federal government over health care in the last year or so. Uh, the federal government's efforts to push Florida into Medicaid expansion um, pretty much blew up the legislative session last year, uh, created a huge battle there, and prevented the passage of a budget, which is the legislature's only constitutional obligation, uh, and created a special session just in time for the fiscal year to start. It also um, um, created some federal funding cuts for uncompensated care in hospitals uh, as a result of Florida's failure or refusal to expand Medicaid. I'd like to talk a little bit about the appropriate role of the federal government in healthcare and the appropriate role of the state. Uh, what should that relationship look like in, in the new world order that you would like to see or now where we have existing long-term partnerships like in the Medicaid program? Are there things that states could be doing to solve this problem and aren't? Well, what I would like to see is a universal fixed sum tax credit. We all get the same amount of money. It would be roughly what it now costs to put people to Medicaid, and that's $2,500 for an adult or $8,000 for a family of four. So that's what you get. That's your tax credit. And then I would get let everybody in Medicaid get out of Medicaid if they want to and go into the private marketplace. So Medicaid will become increasingly less important over time as people choose private alternatives. And everyone will have the ability to buy at least Medicaid-like insurance, and most of you are going to want something better than that, and you'll be free to do it. With a balanced budget, in the state of Florida and realizing that we are 19% of our people are older than 65, 20% are poor, 4% are illegal, and 12% are vet veterans. We really have to have the right to do something for our own people by what we are, not by what is dictated by the government. So in that sense, it was very hard to increase the Medicaid and expand it because when you realize it, the coverage will stop at 90% at the age of 2020. And what would we do if we do not change the balanced budget? of the state of Florida. So I have the feeling that we have to look for some other ways and means by which we can increase the, the coverage of those people in the absence of Medicaid expansion. And one of them should be that the federal government should be able to liberate and remove the cuts that they have put in the, dis, the disproportionate share payment for hospitals that see safe nets and teaching hospitals in the sense that by the year 2019, we will be able to at least lose 50 billions in that program. So we cannot do both things at the same time in the absence of expansion, then let, go, let the poor that would be Medicaid eligible to be able to go to the hospitals of where they should be seen freely by having monies given in the disproportionate share budget that is now being eliminated. So as I illustrated my slides, the, nearly all spending on healthcare in this country is funneled in one way or the other through the federal government. So there, is a, there are a few things that the, state, the states can do to, to affect that balance of power. It's up to Congress uh, to change that balance of power through, through new uh, laws and reforms. Uh, there are, however, very important things that Florida can do to improve the, the, the quality of health care uh, and the quality of the health care market in Florida. The first is don't expand Medicaid. Medicaid would be a fiscal disaster for Florida. It's, it's like crack addiction. They give it to you for free at first, and then you have to start paying for it, uh, and that's when you go broke. And that's kind of what happens with the Medicaid expansions. It's free initially for the state, quote unquote free, the federal government is paying for it. Obviously, your federal taxes are paying for it, but then over time, 
the state has to start paying a share of the Medicaid expansion. That share uh, ends up being very, very significant uh, and material uh, to the state budget. So that, I would encourage you to, to, uh, to hold, hold the line there as, far, as long as you can. But there's actually a whole suite of, 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 of things and policies and reforms that Florida can engage in uh, to, to reform health care in the state. And I, and I actually spoke about this in Tallahassee not so long ago to the Florida's Gov uh, Florida Governor's Commission on uh, Health Care and Hospital Funding. And these revolve around the provider side of the equation. So we've talked a lot about how to pay for health care, and that's very important to change. But there are things you can do to reform the way we sell health care, the way we deliver health care. The most important of which is something that, uh, that we talked about earlier with Dr. Novella, which is uh, hospital consolidation. The fact that hospitals all over the country are merging so that they can charge higher prices to private insurers. So states have an important role in antitrust to ensure that, uh, that hospitals are only merging when they can really persuade you that it isn't, uh, it isn't for, um, uh, uh, to gain market power to charge higher prices uh, in a way that would violate antitrust principles. So that's a very important uh, area for, for states to be more involved in. There are uh, areas such as telemedicine. So in Texas, where I now live, uh, the Texas Medical Board, which is the uh, uh, agent, state agency that regulates the uh, practice of medicine, Texas Medical Board said uh, you basically can't engage in telemedicine. So for example, I can't uh, uh, have a doctor who lives out of state but is licensed to practice medicine in Texas. I can't even talk to that doctor on the phone if I have chest pains and I'm wondering whether I should check into the ER or something like that. And telemedicine, for example, is one of these, uh, these tech, it's, it's old technology, right? It's 115 years old, the telephone. But, um, but this has been regulated by the government at state level and federal level. So the things you can do to actually um, uh, give safe harbor to telemedicine will allow all sorts of uh, internet-related technologies to flourish in terms of the delivery of care in a low-cost way. Uh, there are other things around just exactly what it is that, uh, that nurses should be allowed to do versus doctors. And, and Dr. Novello and I were talking about this yesterday, about how it's very important to make sure that doctors are trained to do the things, uh, doctors are, uh, do the things that doctors are trained to do. There are things that nurses are trained to do that, that they should be able to do within, you know, again, within, re with respect to their training. So there's a whole suite of reforms like that that are kind of unsexy because they're sort of, they seem not as big as saving America from destruction and death and bankruptcy, but, but can do a lot to actually make healthcare uh, more affordable and better for the people in this state. Price transparency is another, as, as, as Dr. Novell was talking about, making sure that people know what, what they're paying when they go into the hospital and have, hold hospitals accountable uh, for their pricing structure. On the same token, when you ask a doctor, would you prefer to see a Medicare patient or a Medicaid patient, uh, they prefer to see Medicare because the monies that they get are in a larger amount than Medicaid. So there was a regulation in the Obamacare in where there would be parity between Medicare and Medicaid for the doctors in primary care. The money was available just for two years when the doctors already had all these patients that they have gotten from Medicaid to be able to have parity, the funding disappeared. So now you have a whole bunch of angry doctors there that increase their practices and that's why when you hear now doctors basically saying, I'm not taking Medicaid patients because they don't even trust their own government. On top of that, telemedicine is wonderful. We did it in New York because wonderful state, but in the upstate New York, there were only four neurologists for hundreds of patients. And because of the storm and because 18 places in the state of New York do not even have a, a, 
a center of care, we wanted to do telemedicine. The biggest problem at that time was that we needed to make sure that the one on the other side knew the medicine that they were trying to dictate the one on the other side. But the thing became even bigger when they realized that the person that came in with the stroke, which hospital got funded, the one that diagnosed or the one that received. Finally, CMS solved the issue by giving some money to the hospital that received the person with the stroke and then gave the extra money to the hospital that took care of the stroke. So even in that sensitivity, my worry is, like in here in the state of Florida, we do not want doctors that have the license from Florida to be able to use telemedicine when they live in another place because so many things have changed in the everyday routine of the patient. So it is an, it's a wonderful system. We just wanted to make sure that also they have such a firewall that the privacy of the patient is totally protected. So until those things are done, telemedicine is a wonderful thing to have. But I hope that the other person reading my case is basically trained to understand not only the computer side, but the, but the medical aspects of what they are trying to do. Do we have any audience questions? Hi, my name is Joan Matthews. Uh, your chart pointed out Singapore and Switzerland, which are small entities, and um, you know, there's some argument about diseconomies of scale in the United States and how we might have true decentralization to create greater efficiencies in the delivery of healthcare systems. So I'd love to, if you could address that. And also the role of fraud, which may be also related to some of the massive scale of delivery that we have in the United States. Sure, so on the issue of whether a big country like America can have free, a free market healthcare, or if it's only small countries that can have market or in healthcare, I would first just submit that the laws of economics don't change based on the size of your country. Um, the principle that if you pay more directly for services, there's gonna be more efficiency in that is true regardless of the scale of the country that you're talking about. Um, there is an, an instructive paper from Regina Herzlinger, who's a professor at Harvard Business School, who actually compared Switzerland to the states in the United States that are the most demographically and, uh, and, and, and medically similar uh, to Switzerland, economically similar. And that was, uh, it turned out to be Maryland, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. Um, and, and she found that if you compare the Swiss system to the healthcare systems of Maryland, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, uh, Switzerland outperformed in pretty much every way. Uh, but I think the broader point really is that markets work when we allow them to, and markets especially work uh, in large countries like the United States. On the question of, of fraud, it's pretty simple. So um, uh, the Medicare doesn't actually allow you to pay uh, to, to, to fight fraud effectively, because Medicare is required by law to pay out claims within, I think, 30 days, regardless of whether they're the right claims or not. So as, as you may know, here in Florida, uh, Medicare fraud is a bigger problem than drug dealing in terms of the size of criminal activity on a dollar basis that occurs. And it basically is always going to happen if the government is involved in paying those claims, because the, gov the government doesn't have the economic incentive to root out fraud the way private financial companies and financial entities do. So one of the things you'll hear President Obama say is, well, Medicare is more efficient because it has uh, lower uh, administrative costs. You know, the percentage of money that Medicare spends on administration is lower than it is for private insurers. Well, uh, a bank would have lower administrative costs if it had no security guards but it might also be the victim of more crime. Uh, and the same is true with Medicare. 
So, uh, like many things uh, in health policy, this is one of those cliche talking points that turns out to be uh, deeply flawed. So, really, the, 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 you can do things to make a Medicare uh, to be more aggressive in how you tackle Medicare fraud within the existing program. The problem is, then you increase the hassle factor for doctors and hospitals in complying uh, with those uh, with those regulations, and that creates other costs and other problems with access. So the real solution is to minimize the degree to which the government is paying for these claims and doing more of it through the food stamp type mechanism where you're giving people the, the, the straightforward dollars to, to consume those healthcare uh, services directly. I do believe that in the past we used to, the fraud was available and we would then Medicare would try to get the money back from you that they pay you in excess. Now they have all single inspectors watching what you submit and from there then they will not give you what you're charging unless they're sure that you're charging for the right procedure. So in a way they have recovered much more fraud money than in the past. So I believe that at least in the law that is something that is working pretty good. Let's go on with the next question. My name is John Puffer, I'm from Tampa. My question is, is there any presidential candidate who has the correct answers to the three questions that Dr. Roy proposed and if not, uh, who can or will take the lead in restoring uh, uh, medicine to the free market? Uh, let me answer this because uh, Ovik is a advisor to uh, Senator Rubio, so uh, he, he can't be entirely objective, but I can. <laughs> the best one is Rubio. <laughs> and um, the reason is because he, along with uh, Paul Ryan, have endorsed the idea of the fixed sum tax credit that I talked about earlier that will replace all the different ways that we're subsidizing health care today. And it would empower individuals and promote competition. And so um, uh, he, I think, is definitely the best so far. Yo creo que es el mejor rubio. Thank you. My, my name is Carl Dahlman. I have a question on the extraordinary cost of development of drugs in America. The last number I've heard is 1.2 billion. That may or may not be an old number. It's 2.6. Okay. And then the second part of the question is, uh, um, in mostly single-payer countries, they negotiate prices of drugs with the manufacturers. We, we've not done that so far. So in my mind, in a sense, we're subsidizing the Canadian system because we're paying a higher price, say, to Merck, and they've got to recover their investment. So the cost of development and the subsidies of foreign nations, which I think both drive up our costs. Great question, um, and uh, I'll, I'll answer it with several different points. So the first is uh, uh, the high cost of drug development has only gotten worse because the FDA has made it much more difficult uh, to develop new drugs. And that's been a huge, huge problem. Uh, and, and what it's done is it's, it's effectively distorted the way in which biotech companies in particular, but also big pharmaceutical companies, invest in drug development. Now, nobody invests in new drugs for diabetes or heart disease because doing those trials requires 20,000 patients because these are common diseases uh, uh, that treat, you know, that affect a lot of people. So those trials are the most expensive because basically the larger, the number of more patients you have to have in a clinical trial, the more expensive it is. So what drug companies are doing is they're focusing on diseases that affect like 4,000 people. There's some genetic mutation, 4,000 people have it, we can cure their particular type of lung cancer or treat it, and then charge $300,000 per patient per year for that product. 
and then nobody gets mad because it's 4,000 people, who cares? But they make billions of dollars on those drugs. So that's, that's what the FDA's regulatory structure has done in terms of how it's steering uh, drug development today in a way that's, I think, uh, problematic. But the bigger problem is this, which is just as we, for the same reasons that hospitals charge five times as much for a day in the hospital in the United States as we do, they charge in other countries, or doctors charge three times as much as, as other countries do. That's what's really going on here, is that the, the open bar problem with the way we pay for healthcare is also true in drugs. So let me give you an example. In 2007, the iPhone came out, the iPhone 1, let's call it. The iPhone 1 cost $599. It had a tiny little screen, 320 by 480, and, a, and like eight gigs of memory. The iPhone 6S Plus, which came out last October, is $499, so on an inflation-adjusted basis, that's 27% lower price. It has 128 gigs of memory, and the screen is like uh, 16 times the resolution of the iPhone 1. So 27% less, but 16 times more screen size, 16 times more memory, and processor speed. That's how things work in the technology sector. So let me take uh, a biotech drug called Avonex, which is a drug to treat multiple sclerosis. It came out in 1996. Uh, it was developed by a company called Biogen, which was founded by a Nobel laureate from MIT. That drug, when it came out, was $10,000 per patient per year. Today, the same drug is $60,000 per patient per year, even though there are five other drugs for multiple sclerosis that have come out in the intervening years that are actually more effective than Avonex. So that is not a free market healthcare system, right? So you'll hear drug companies say, well, you can't have price controls because that's not free market, and they're right. But that doesn't mean we should accept that, that we have to have high prices to sustain innovation. It's not true. In every other sector of the economy, innovation is accompanied by lower prices, not higher prices. But you hear the drug companies always say, well, the only way we can have innovation is through higher prices. That's not true. So we have to solve two problems. One, we have to solve the problem of the FDA actually increasing how much it costs to develop innovative drugs through its regulatory uh, uh, expansion. But we also have to make sure that we hold drug companies to the same standards we hold technology companies. Say, no, actually, just because you're an innovative drug company doesn't mean you charge six times as much today for a drug that you know, has been around for 20 years. We wouldn't accept that for high definition televisions. Why should we accept that for biotech drugs? On the same token, I have to tell you that uh the presence of lobbyists in the pharmaceutical companies are really a big point of why the price of drugs are so intense, and I'll give you an example. Um, there's 100,000 people waiting to have a kidney transplant. However, you have 41 lobbyists in the dialysis units, and you have three lobbyists in the transplantation doctors. So when you talk about $264,000 that a transplant cost versus $70,000 for dialysis for one year, any kind of legislator is going to go and say, I'll give you 70 versus 263 when the rest gets amortified at the end of three years. So in the interim, you have lobbies trying to tell you that this is better, that this is better, and the patient is the one who suffers. In the United States, if you have a kidney transplant, the US government will only pay your medications for three years if you're under the age of 65. However, if you're over the age of 65, it's paid for life. There has been a legislation for the last five years waiting to be approved in where when you have a kidney transplant, you should be able to have your drugs paid for life because then there's not many more transplants than you're going to do or paying the 70,000 for dialysis. But 41 lobbies versus three makes a difference in pharma when you come and talk to a legislator in Congress. So lobbying has a lot to do also for the price of drugs. Please join me in thanking our panelists.
Gracias.